I just want to help you see the basic structure of what's going on here. So verses 14 through 24 is Jesus teaching. That's just simply what's happening. Jesus is teaching. Verses 25 through 31 are the response to his teaching. Or you might say what what the teaching ushered forth. Debate and speculation about what he was saying. And this is true. Friends, this is always true. Whenever Jesus is teaching, he's always stirring things up. And that's happening right now. If what I'm doing is really trying to re-speak the truth of God's Word, I'm doing nothing original. I'm just trying to re-speak what God has communicated through His Word. And if that's really happening, and by grace I pray that it does, and I pray by grace that it is, then what's happening is something should be happening in you. Something should be stirring. Nothing, church, nothing is as disruptive as the activity of grace. Nothing disrupts like the grace of God. Jesus teaches, and whenever he opens his mouth, you see all kinds of stuff happening. You see the response. People are calling him a demon. Some people are saying they believe in him. They're, 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 they're stirred up inside. Jesus never leaves things as they are. He's always interested in showing us how he came to change things, how he came to redeem things, how he came to transform things, how he came to, to rescue and transform our lives. And he continues to do that for everyone that's in Christ. You are not yet what you're going to be. Jesus is disrupting. He's changing. He's moving. He's always on the move. I'm convinced that we as Christians oftentimes don't see God's activity because we're not as close to God to know his heart, to see what he's doing. You ever meet someone who's really close to Jesus? When you meet someone who's close to Jesus, you see someone who is living a life of adventure. Why? Because God's always on the move. And they see it. I want to be more like that. I've said that nothing is as disruptive as, as grace. That's true, on a, that, that's true at a number of levels. That's true at a foundational level. What do I mean by that? That means if, if you have put your trust in Christ alone and allowed Him to rule and reign in your heart and received His forgiveness, your life has been completely transformed. Has anybody experienced that? My prayer is, I I believe there are those that are with us that have not yet experienced the life-transforming grace that Jesus came to bring. I want you to experience how disruptive grace is at a rock-bottom foundational level. It changes everything. If you want to see how it changes people because you've, you've lost sight of that, find one of the people who was just recently baptized. Or get this, guys. We just baptized three people on Easter Sunday about a month ago. We've got eight more people to baptize. Eight more. Praise Jesus. He's, nothing is as disruptive as grace. We're preaching the gospel of John, and God and Jesus is disrupting people's lives and bringing them from death 
to life. Praise Him. Aren't you thankful for this? So grace disrupts our lives at a foundational level, but it also disrupts our lives at a functional level. What do I mean by that? That means that the transforming impact of grace is not just for those to experience who don't know Jesus. That even if you've been following Jesus for a long, long, long time, grace is still active and disrupting your life, and you are being transformed into the image of His Son. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful for the work of grace in your life? Last week's testimony, powerful, not a dry eye in the place. If you didn't get to see it, you should watch it on on our YouTube channel. But that was a testimony of how grace is functioning right here, right now, in people's lives. So, so grace is disruptive at a functional level. It's, it's people that are saying every day, when I get up in the morning, because I'm in, I'm in Christ, I'm saying, where you go, I follow Jesus. And, and that means that sometimes I'm going to need to be redirected. Because sometimes I get up and I'm just kind of walking along and I look and Jesus is over here. But I'm going this way. And, and grace wants to me back on track. Do you like that? Most of the time, I like that. I want that. Jesus wants to change things. He wants to give you himself. And there's people in here that are listening right now. And, and Jesus, I want you to know this. Because I believe it's the, Spirit of, the Holy Spirit's heart for you that Jesus is doing something in your life. You know who I'm talking to because you feel it right now. Jesus is doing something in your life. Some of you, His grace is disruptively active so that you might be set free from something. He's going to say, there's people in this room, there's people at home, there's people downstairs who need to be set free from some besetting sins, and grace wants to do that. Do you believe that this morning? Some of you need a different view of God. Your view of God is down here, and God wants to lift your eyes, and he's going to do it through the preaching of God's word. He's going to do it through this picture of Jesus, and he wants to give you a view that is breathtaking. Some of you lack joy. God just simply wants to disrupt, He wants grace to disrupt your life that you might be more joyful. Some of you, God's calling to a level of fruitfulness that you're not quite at yet. He's, he's going he's gonna to bring you. He's doing something in your life that, that is going to bring. He's going to establish the work that he's doing in you. And you're going to start to experience fruitfulness. Nothing as disruptive as grace. This title of this morning's sermon is There's Nobody Like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. And if I just like unexpectedly start to experience emotion that you can't understand, it's because my heart is so full this morning of love for Jesus. I got up this morning, I was working on my sermon, and when I finished working on it, there was a pile of tissues next to me. Because I'm amazed at the love and mercy of Jesus for me, a sinner. And I want you to be amazed too. 
There's nobody like Jesus. So let's look at the breakdown of this. Let's get to work. Sometimes I say, let's get to work, and people react. I don't want to go to work. It's Sunday. Let's get to work in the best sense of the word. Let's get to work and accomplish something that we can be excited about. So, what do we got? Verse 14, we're picking up where Isaac left off. Remember, the disciples went to Jerusalem, and he didn't go with them. And it was confusing, remember, because he ends up going. We know that he he ends up going to the feast, but he doesn't go when they go. In fact, he told them he wasn't going to go, and then he goes. And we get a hint in verse 1 of chapter 7 of why he won't go. It's It's a really good reason when you think about it. I wouldn't have gone either. If I knew what verse 1 in chapter 7 says. Do you, do you remember what it says? After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea. Remember, we saw Jerusalem is in, in the area of Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Whenever people are seeking to kill me, I stay out of the area wherever they are. It's just good common sense. It keeps you alive longer. So the question we should be asking is, why does he eventually go to Jerusalem when we know there they are seeking to kill him there? If you're going, if you're looking to avoid controversy and you're looking to retain anonymity, I don't understand his choice to go. This was not the place to go. Uh, or the time to go if Jesus was intending to protect his privacy. But let's remember, church, that Jesus' concern was never his privacy. His concern was obedience to the Father. And at some point, the father directed him to go. And so he went. And here he is in the temple, and we're told that he starts to get up and teach. About the middle of the feast, Jesus goes up into the temple and begins teaching. And the response to his teaching is is typical. The word used there is that people are listening to his teaching, and they're marveling at it. They're amazed at it, which is typically true when Jesus taught. Now, the reason, what's interesting is John tells us the reason for why they're marveling at his teaching. And it's different than the the reason that Matthew tells us. When Matthew tells the same account, he says that the people marveled at Jesus' teaching. But, But Matthew tells us that they were marveling for a different reason than John tells us. They're both true statements, but Matthew was looking at it from this angle, and John was looking at it from another angle. Matthew tells us that the people were marveling at Jesus' teaching all throughout the the account that he wrote because Jesus regularly says this in the book of Matthew, you have heard that it was said, but I say, 
He did that over and over again. You have heard. What was he referencing? He's referencing the teaching of the scriptures. He's referencing the teaching of the Jewish rabbis, the the religious leaders. And he's saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say, and that really got people upset because you're messing with our traditions. Who are you to say? What does it matter what you say? So they were astonished that he kind of spoke with this authority. But I say, you have heard that it was said that you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say, whoever looks lustfully at a woman has committed adultery in his heart. You see what Jesus was doing there? It was unnerving. It was disruptive. I'm going along great here, Jesus, until you start talking. But that's not what the people in John's gospel are amazed about. They're amazed for a different reason. They're astonished for a different reason. What's the reason? You should look. The answer's here. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, here it comes. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They're astonished, not so much over, it's it's the authority of his teaching, but it's not so much the, the authority of his teaching as it is his lack of educational background. In other words, he ain't got no credibility. What are his credentials? We want to know. How many initials Follow your name, Jesus. They're astonished at this. They marvel over this. These these are academics, many of them. Not all of them. There's crowds, but then there's the religious leaders, and those are the ones that are seeking to kill him, and they're listening to him, and they are academics. They are famously, the Jewish rabbis were famously concerned with footnotes. Has anybody done grad school? Has anybody done PhD work? Have you gotten your master's degree? You know this to be true. You, when you get into the circle of academics, man, the footnotes for their papers, the, the footnote page is longer than the paper is because they are quoting. They are like, I've, what, it, what they're saying is, I know what I'm talking about because I've done the reading. I've got credentials. PhDs substantiate pronouncements by appealing to earlier case, cases, earlier historical judgments, rabbinical teachings. They, they appeal to things. If you don't footnote, then it's one of two things. One, you don't know what in the world you're talking about. Or two, you're arrogant and you're independent. And you're dangerously drifting from the weights of Jewish tradition. What's your cred? Who gives you the right? What are your credentials, Jesus? Now Jesus, like he often does, he goes along with the the traditions of the day in the sense that there was rightness in them he always goes along and so he tells them who his footnote where his footnote is he tells them that he says in keeping with their tradition my teaching is not my own 
So he's footnoting. He's delivering to them the source. Who is it? What's the source? Footnote. God told me. God taught me. Footnote. The Father. And he's already told him that the Father and he are one. They don't like that credential. Jesus and the religious leaders agree on something. What they agree on is that the will of God is revealed in the law, in the Scriptures, in the Bible. They, Jesus would agree with the religious leaders on this, that if you want to find the will of God, you find it in the law. If you want to find the will of God, you find it in the Scriptures. Jesus and the Pharisees would agree on this. So when Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law, that question was rhetorical. You know the intention of a rhetorical question, right? It's not, it's not a question that's intended to be answered. This was a rhetorical question. When he said to them, has not Moses given you the law? It might have been like someone saying to you, can't you do anything right? They're not looking for you to respond. Well, actually, there are a few things I can do right. It's a rhetorical question. It's not intended to be answered. They're not looking for an answer. Its intent is dramatic flair. The answer is obvious. They know who gave them the law. These guys are not idiots. Rhetorical questions function as a challenge. So when Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law, it would be the same as questioning, is the sky blue? Then Jesus sets the hook. The hook pierces. His next statement stings. But you don't keep it. What's the point? They have the law. Moses gave it to them. And what we would learn from religious tradition is that the Pharisees actually delight in the law. They know what the psalmist says about the law. They read it. They memorize it. They know it. They teach it. But they never get around to doing it. What's the proof, Jesus? They want to kill me. And the last time I checked the Ten Commandments, killing an innocent man without substantiating the charge is murder. And so there's exhibit, that's just one exhibit for how you disobey and disregard the very law that you say you delight in. 
Let's talk for a minute. Can we talk for a minute? Because there's some application here for all of us. Question for us, Brandywine Grace. Is not, do you ever read the Bible? That's not the question. It's not, do you ever listen to the Bible? It's not, do you ever listen to preaching of the Bible? That's not the question that, come, that flows from what's happening here. It's not, has your mind ever been opened? It's not, has the teaching ever warmed your heart? The question is, has the teaching of the Bible begun to mold you? Are you being conformed to the patterns of this world or are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind which comes through the, our intake of God's word? We've been talking a lot as a church about what it means to make sure that we have the structure, the support in place to be able to answer this question. Are we making healthy disciples at Brandywine Grace? Or how do you become a healthy disciple? What is a healthy disciple? We need to have certain structures in place to ensure that we can answer that question. So we're taking a look, at even this fall, of making some, some changes in terms of how we build up disciples here at Brandywine Grace. That's an important question. But here's the danger. Here's the guardrail for us. And so many churches go off the guardrails here. Is you become so programmatic. You create so many programs for people that people hear the word. They actually like listening to the word. They actually grow in knowledge but never get around to doing it. It can happen. It happened to the Pharisees. They knew the word way better than you guys do. Way better than I do. They memorized portions of Scripture that would humble everyone except for maybe Gabe. <laughs> Bible study. So if you attend a Bible study, I'm so grateful. And I'm grateful for Rebecca Flack who leads our women's ministry because she does this all the time. It's, it's not just for you, Right? It's not just so you can, oh, boy, I'm real smart today. It's not, you should always be listening. You should be listening right now for how you could take what you're learning and teach it to someone else. That's what this healthy discipleship is. The Bible studies are not intended only for you. I don't want us to become the kind of disfigured, distorted Christians around here that know the word, build up maybe their biceps, but never do a leg workout day and don't ever get around to doing it. And you start to get this weird looking person like you see at LA Fitness. Shoulder day, but never leg day. 
we build up our minds. We go and we learn the Bible and all, but we never get around to being holistic, healthy, spiritually fit disciples who actually are concerned about doing it. If you are a part of a Bible study that gets excited about studying God's Word but never ever gets around to doing it, you should leave that Bible study immediately because that's a dangerous Bible study. Jesus says these guys love the Word. They delight in the Word. They delight in it, but they never get around to doing it. They never get around to action. They manipulate it. And he says that as a result of this, they stand condemned. God wants to mold us so that our lives actually look like Jesus. God wants to transform us so that we actually go about living with Christ's heart for everyone, for your people in your family, for, the, for your spouse, for, for the people that live on your street, for, for the people that you work with, for, for everyone. He wants us to have his heart. How do we get that? It's through the Holy Spirit taking the teaching of, of God's word and impressing it upon your heart. I want us to be people that look like Jesus, that act like Jesus. I want people to say, who are you? I'm a, a Christian that's following Jesus. I want that to make a difference. The Lord wants to make that a, 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 us to have that kind of impact. I was reading something that Sam Albury, he's a Christian writer, said, and I think it's true for right now. You think, of, think about what's, what are God's purposes and everything that he's doing in the world right now, everything he's doing in the U.S. right now. What are his purposes? He's shaking. All you have to do is go on Twitter and see that, that the Christian church is being shaken up. And I, I want us to beware of the danger. The danger to, to drift from love for Jesus and talking about Jesus to drifting towards ideologies. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Ideology is important, but it's not more important than Jesus, right? We, 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 you would have to agree with that if you're a Christian. There's a point, Sam Albury said, where being anti-something begins to subtly eclipse being for something. I'm concerned that the church, Brandywine Grace and other churches in this area and in the nation, are, are rallying to define what we're not, what we're becoming anti-everything. And in becoming anti-everything, what gets eclipsed is actually being for something. The being for something comes first. But... If we are always concerned about being anti-something, then what we're for actually gets reshaped and ultimately gets displaced. I know people who used to talk a lot about Jesus and now talk a lot more about ideology. Let's not drift from Jesus, church. Please. Who's with me? 
You're so quiet. You're either offended or you're upset with me or you believe it or something. Let's not drift from Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. I didn't title the message, there's, nobody like a, there's nothing like a good ideology. There's nothing like a good political debate. The scripture says there's nobody like Jesus. Now, we're going to move here. What happens is he teaches and he's accused of Sabbath breaking and he brings that up and that's all the way back to chapter 5 where he healed that guy and got in trouble for it because he did it on the Sabbath. You can study more of that on your own. But he teaches and it... And it calls forth all kinds of debate and speculation. So the Pharisees say you have a demon. The iron here of this. The Son of God is teaching them, and they accuse him of being demon-possessed. Do you see the irony of John's writings? Some people are angry. He says, I, you, you do circumcision on the Sabbath because you want to make sure that someone's spiritually whole. And so you take one part of their body and you do an operation on it. And you do that on the Sabbath. And so I do something. I take a person's whole body and make it holy well. And you get angry with me for it. But you do, you do the same thing. There's confusion. So some people are saying, well, wait a second. Maybe, maybe the authorities think this really is Jesus but we know where Jesus came from. So, so we know that the scriptures say we won't know where he came from. So you see the confusion over him. And then it ends with, yet many of the people believed in him. You see how disruptive grace is. There's nobody like Jesus exposing hearts, but his intentions are clear throughout the entire Bible. He came to seek and save the lost. He came, John the Baptist identified him as, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came to truly satisfy. That's why he called himself the bread of life. He'll move to thirst language. If you go down to verse 37, which Dave will be covering next week, he says, on the last day of the feast, he stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. So he's talked about food and satisfying He's the satisfying bread of life, but now he's going to talk about thirst. And although the offer of, of satisfying thirst is free and open to everyone, there are terms to be met. Isaac preached that so well last week. He said, believing in Jesus means receiving him on his terms alone for his sake alone. C.S. Lewis does this so well. In, a, in a, a section of his book called The Silver, Ch the Silver Chair, in it, the character sees a lion and they're scared to death. Jill is her name. She's scared to death. So she takes off running. She runs into the forest. She runs away from this lion that she's terrified from. And she's, she's running so hard because she's so scared, but she wears herself out. And she's literally, the, the, the author says, almost dying of thirst. She feels like she's going to die of thirst. So she just lays down like, I'm going to die. I, I, I need water so bad. And there's no water. And so she is laying down to die. But then she hears running water. She hears a gurgling stream. She walks toward it, 
And she's ready to go to the brook to get a drink because she's dying of a thirst. But then seeing, lying right between her and the stream of water is the lion that was chasing her. Listen to this. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Well, then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered, this only by a look and a very low growl. She gazed at his motionless bulk. She realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that she didn't, without even noticing it, she had come a step closer. Do you eat girls? She said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and whole realms. It didn't say this. The lion didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor if it was sorry, nor if it was angry. It just said it. Well, then I'm not coming to get a drink, said Jill. Well, then you'll die, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream. Do you see what C.S. Lewis has done? You come on his terms. Will he eat you up? Will he swallow you up? Yes, he will. And you will be forever satisfied in the life that you find in him. We should only come if there's nobody like Jesus. We should only come if there's nobody like Jesus. If there's nobody like Jesus, we shouldn't go drink from that stream. We shouldn't go take him up on his offer unless there's nobody like Jesus. I heard Judas Smith preach this so well. The question for us as we end is, is there nobody like Jesus? Is there nobody like Jesus, church? If, why? Why would we say that? Why would Christians say there's nobody like Jesus? Haven't there been billions of men and women that have lived on this planet? Why do we think that there's nobody like Jesus? Are you convinced that there's nobody like Jesus. Why are you convinced? Wasn't he just a great teacher? Wasn't he just a great prophet? Wasn't he just a great moral person? Hasn't there been other great teachers? Haven't there been other great prophets? Haven't there been other great people? What about all other world religions? Is there anyone like Jesus? Who is Jesus anyway? This man from the Middle East who claims to be God. This man from the little city of Nazareth 
that claims to be the Savior, the Son of God. Is he God? Is he the Savior? Is he, as John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Is he the once and all sacrifice for all of humanity who restores our relationship with God, giving us life in his name? Did he become sin? so that you and me could be made right with God? Did he? Did he come offering forgiveness for sin for all who would trust in him? Did he hang on a cross absorbing the wrath of God for us? Did he? Did he die and three days later rise again from the dead, securing our salvation for all who would believe in his name. Is the grave empty? Has he defeated death and hell and the grave and sin is itself? Is it true that we can be joined to him so that we can die to sin just like he did and rise again to walk in newness of life? If so, there really is. Nobody like Jesus.